This is Publishers Weekly Radio, the authority on all things books and publishing, with everything you need to know from your favorite books and the world in which they live to bestseller lists and publishing news. Here's the inside story on your favorite story. Publishers Weekly Radio, with your hosts, Rose Fox and Mark Rotella. Hello and welcome to Publishers Weekly Radio on the web at publishersweekly.com slash pwradio and streaming free on iHeartRadio and iTunes. I'm Rose Fox and I'm a reviews editor at Publishers Weekly. And I'm Mark Rotella, senior editor at Publishers Weekly. We're bringing you the very best of book talk directly from PW's offices in New York City, the heart of the book publishing world. This week, it's a special week. Mark and I are on vacation. We are not, in fact, in PW's offices. We're traveling around. And so we've queued up some of our greatest hits for you from our archives, some interviews with authors whose books remain timely and fascinating. So we'll talk to you soon. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City. Today we've got Sarah Beth Durst on the line. Her new book is The Stone Girl's Story. Sarah, I'm so glad you could join us. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to be talking with you guys. So this is a middle grade fantasy, um, meaning for readers in the 10 to 13 bracket. Is that about how that works? I would say like 8 to 12, mm-hmm. you know, or anybody that loves fantasy, really. So in this fantasy, readers are immersed in the world of a girl named Micah, uh, who has lived on a mountain since as long as she can remember. She's carved out of stone by her flesh and blood father. So set this scene for us, this um, this beautiful world. Yeah, Micah, she's a girl made of living stone. She is forever 12 years old, and she's outlasted the father that carved her. Um, and he brought her to life by carving marks on her stone body that tell her story. And now the marks are beginning to fade from her and her stone friends, and she has to venture out of her mountain and go down into the valley, which she has never done, to try to find a stonemason that can, can recarve their stories and, and extend their lives. So who are her friends? You just mentioned her friends, these other stone uh, children figures? They're not children. They're... Well, there are rabbits, and there's a turtle, and there are bunnies, and later on she meets a stone dragon. I really like things that talk. (laughs) In fact, I think all books can be improved by the addition of either a talking dragon or a talking cat. So I have many things that talk in this book. They were a lot of fun to write. She searches for the secrets to her father's past um, and ends up entering this whole new world. Tell us a little bit about her journey. Yeah, well, it's, it was inspired a little bit by Wizard of Oz, that feeling of going someplace new and bringing your heart with you and finding what home is. So she leaves, she's in this idyllic mountaintop home that was carved by her stonemason father, and she ventures down into this valley that is filled with people made of flesh and blood, which she has never met before. It's kind of fascinated by. It's very much, it's not a Pinocchio story. She doesn't want to be flesh and blood. She thinks they're a little, you know, squishy with parts that fall off all the time, and she's not sure how she feels about that. She'd rather be stone. She goes into this world, and she sees there's all sorts of other stone creatures like her, and she comes to the city. And that's where she has her adventures with trying to find a stonemason and discovering that things are not quite all what they seem to be. 
And stories are very important to this. You said that her father carved her story on her. Is this a sort of anticipation of what he wanted her story to be or the story of how he came to create her? And then she becomes a storyteller. Yeah. Yeah, this is it's very much a story about stories. I mean, I love stories. I really feel that they're as essential to life as air and water and food. Stories are how we understand the world. They're how we process life. They're how we define ourselves. So this book is, is very much all about who tells your story, who shapes who you are. We're, we're shaped by the stories in the past. We're shaped by what we've experienced, and we're shaped by the stories we tell ourselves about our future and about who we can be. And in Mako's case, in the case of these other stone creatures, it's the stonemason who is defining who they are, and through the story, Meka needs to learn to tell her own story and to take the reins as a storyteller herself. So it's just really a story about a girl becoming a writer, which is what I wanted to be my entire life. So it's very, it's a very special story to me. It, it really meant a lot to me writing it, and I loved every second of hanging out with Meka and her friends and exploring her world. So, so before uh, uh, Meka became a writer, t- tell us about her life with the other stone creatures up above the city. Tell us about that life there. That was so much fun to write. So she has she and her stone friends. Their concept of time is, is somewhat different from ours because they're essentially immortal until their markings fade. So one day kind of blends into another. They tell each other stories all the time. They have some some living creatures, some chickens and goats and so forth that they take care of. So they spend their days doing that and playing and being together and being happy and being out in the sun. Um, as a writer, it was such a challenge to write, make us stories because she's made of stone. So she doesn't smell anything. She doesn't taste. She doesn't sleep. And I discovered as I was writing that one thing that I tend to do in my writing is I have a lot of butterflies in the stomach and I feel things in the gut of the characters and she does not have a gut. So (laughs) that was a change stylistically and it made her a lot of fun to write. How does someone who is made of stone experience the world? What does she feel when the sun shines on her? What does she do during the night when the darkness stretches out in front of her and it's just her, her friends, and the stars until dawn comes back again. So it was a really fun challenge and and I miss her. I always have this moment of sadness when I finish a book that I have to say goodbye to these characters that I have lived with. Um, But the best part of a book coming out is other people get to live there now, too, and I love that part of it. It makes the whole thing feel like it's coming full circle. My story is going into the minds of people I've never met and becoming part of their story. In a lot of fantasy stories, the protagonist is like the one and only, and I could understand making make a you know, the one and only stone girl, but instead you've given her this wonderful mixed world, this, this integrated world of stone and flesh side by side. Was that a, a very deliberate decision? It was. It was definitely a deliberate decision. I love Chosen One stories. Now, I'm, I'm still waiting for my letter to Hogwarts, and I remember being absolutely crushed when I was turned 11 and Merriman Lyon didn't come and say, you're one of the old ones, now go seek the signs. You know? So I do love Chosen Ones, but I also love Unchosen One stories where it's the ordinary person that needs to go out and 
do something extraordinary. Um, I do that with Manka and Stone Girl Story and also in my adult fiction, my epic fantasy, The Queens of Ranthia, has a character that is an unchosen one. I'm fascinated by that trope of finding something strong inside yourself. That's actually one of the reasons why I love fantasy literature, why I love reading it and writing it, is that that sense when you when you close a fantasy book that you feel stronger than you were before and that the world feels more magical and more full of wonder than it was before. So I want to talk about the stonemason. Who is the stonemason, uh, her father? Is this a kind of deity or is this a kind of just an average person with, with great skill? Oh, no, they're, they're average people with great skill. Um, I don't really have any, this book doesn't have any wizards or, or, um, or deities from above. The stonemasons are skilled artisans. They are storytellers themselves, and they've perfected their art in carving these creatures. So, and there's a variety of skills. There's a bunch of stonemasons, and some of them are very good and able to carve something as gorgeous as Meka or Kisonen, who is a stone griffin that you meet later. Um, and some are more crude workhorses that are out, just out to plow the field, and they're not very well defined, and they just have the one story attached that they do this one task. So there's there's great variety in terms of the skill level of these stonemasons um, and how detailed their story is. Meka's father happens to be, he was, one of the best. He was a master stone stonemason, um, and Meka was really his masterpiece. And when the stone carvings begin to fade, is that simply that they're weathered away, or is it something mm-hmm. to do with the with the magic ebbing once the person who created it is gone? No, it's it's the actual carvings beginning to fade away through just the weathering of time, and they just they begin to slow. The book opens with Turtle, who's been one of her companions. He's just walked very slowly out to where he has a view over the valley, and he wanted to make sure that he stopped where he would have a view forever, oh. and that's where he stopped. Um, and that's when Meka realizes that this is happening to all of them, and eventually they will all slow and they will all stop. That sounds like a thing that maybe a lot of kids in that 8 to 12 age bracket are grappling with, that, that we all slow, that we all stop. Right. You know, when, you're, when you're that age, you're starting to think about the future and your life and, and your story and mortality. And there's, there's a fair bit of that. And it's, not, it's not a sad book, but <laughs> it's, it's, I think it's a very real book. Um, one of the things that fantasy does let you do is explore these very real themes in a kind of extreme way and, and look at them in a way that you can't when you're bound by the laws of how our world works and physics and biology and all of that. So you get to explore these, these big ideas, and that makes it a lot of fun. Also, you know, talking stone rabbits, also fun. Right. <laughs> and what's the significance of stone for you? This, what, are, what are the concepts inherent in stone and stone characters? I think, well, okay, the reason I thought of this story is kind of a silly little thing. Um, I'm a really bad gardener. Like, plants see me and they wither. I just, I either overwater and drown them or whatever, but I always try to make a garden. So I have all these, every year I try these flowers, and my husband bought me this little stone rabbit to go in the garden to kind of be like, okay, it's a garden with a little rabbit, and I put the rabbit in, and the weeds 
completely devoured the thing. I could not <laughs> find it the next year. So I'm like, oh, it hopped away to join its stone friends. And that's where I got the idea. Um, and I find that happens with a lot of my books. I get the idea from one teeny thing, like a little bit of a dream or a little you know, stone rabbit or something small that I stumble across. Like, oh, I want to write a book with a winged lion or I want to do this. And then it will latch itself onto other ideas. I always think of it like each idea is a, is a flame. And when you get enough flames, they join together to form a fire. So the flame for Stone Girl's story was really that little rabbit that I have no idea where it is. I mean, it has to be out there somewhere in my garden, but I have no idea. <laughs> is there a deeper meaning in uh, Make His Father's Magic Fading Away After He Dies? It's really just related to their marks weathering with time. It's not connected. Once, once he created them, they're, they're born. Just like once when you write a story, when you write a book, it's separate from you, and it goes on to have a separate life for as long as it lasts and for long, as long as it can live in the minds and imaginations of its readers. It, his creations are very much like that. Once he's carved them, they are their own beings, and they're not tied to him anymore which is why they can then go on to shape their own stories and become their own selves if they're willing to take that risk of taking control of their own stories. We're going to take a quick break, but don't go away. Book lovers everywhere love Publishers Weekly Radio, now on iHeartRadio.com. PW Radio brings you the best of books and book publishing news. PW editors Rose Fox and Mark Rotella offer lively interviews with your favorite authors. And conversations with new authors you'll want to get to know. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella. Join the community of book lovers at PW Radio. Every Friday and now on demand at iHeartRadio.com. Welcome back. We're talking with Sarah Beth Durst, author of The Stone Girl's Story. You mentioned uh, thinking about how this lives in the minds of readers. Do you get to go hang out with your readers? Do you do school visits and readings, bookshop appearances, things like that? I do, and I love doing those things. It just, it makes it feel complete to, to meet people and know that your stories are living on inside them. Uh, I always think of, of books as these magic things. You know, there are these little rectangles that have the power to transport someone and take them on an adventure and then bring them back again, you know, slightly changed. And so what you're trying to do when you're writing a story is to create that, to create that moment of telepathy, to pull somebody on this adventure and take them on this shared dream. And most of the time, you're just sending it out to strangers. But then you get to go to libraries and bookstores, and I get emails and tweets and all of that from people who have met these characters and brought them into their hearts. And it is the most magical thing to know that my character is now alive inside somebody else's heart. That just, it makes me so happy. And I love going to these book events, like at libraries and so forth, and being surrounded by people that love books and stories as much as I do. It just fills me with joy and energy and makes me so very happy. <laughs> and you've been doing this, uh, I think, for several books. You've got, what, uh, 14 fantasy books uh, under your belt now. Uh, these are yeah. for readers of all ages. And you also have something called uh, The Queen of Sorrow, which is which is also coming out in May. Tell us about that. Yeah, so I write fantasy for all ages. I mean, really, the fantasy part is, is my first love. And 
it depends on what kind of story I'm telling as to what it turns out being. Like Stone Girl's story is middle grade because it's about a 12-year-old girl and you see the world through her eyes. Queen of Sorrow is for adults, um, also appropriate for teens as well. But that one is about older characters who have experienced more in life. It's an epic fantasy. It is book three in the Queens of Ranthea series. Book one was the Queen of Blood. Book two is the Reluctant Queen. And book three is the Queen of Sorrow. And they're set in this world filled with nature spirits. But they're not like sweet, sparkly pastoral sprites. These spirits actually want to kill all humans. And there are only certain women, the queens, who have the power to control them. So in book three, I am wrapping up the trilogy about these queens and their bloodthirsty nature spirits. And it was so much fun to write these these books, writing epic fantasy and other world fantasies like Stone Girl's story. It just it feels like walking through a wardrobe into Narnia every day as my job. <laughs> and I love it so much. <laughs> How do you juggle simultaneously writing books for different audiences? You know, you have this book coming out. You you were writing this, I'm assuming, in the middle of writing the Queens of Renthia series. Um, how do you kind of switch in your head from project to project? Well, they, I try to work on one thing at a time because I find that they all have different, slightly different voices and different world and different characters. So I don't do it all in the same day, but I do go back and forth, you know, every couple of weeks or every couple of months, I'll switch, depending on where it is in, in the whole writing process, switch between worlds. And really, writing between different age groups is no different than going between different books of different subgenres. You know, it's just just as much of a mental shift to go from funny contemporary fantasy to epic fantasy as it is for to go from fantasy for kids as fantasy for adults. I think the key is that I really, I, I really try very hard to see the story and the world through the character's eyes when I write. I typically write in, in third person, very close point of view, so you're seeing the world through their eyes. And when you're writing through the eyes of a 12-year-old, it's going to come out middle grade because you're seeing it through their eyes. If you're writing through the eyes of, for instance, one of the, ma the main characters in my Queen of Renthia series is Naylin, who is uh, 40-something mother of two, um, when you see somebody through her eyes, it's going to come out a very different story. So it's really just a matter of plunking myself into the heads of the characters and you know, choosing which doorway into Narnia am I going to. Am I going to the stone world or am I going to the trees are going to eat me world? Many of your books are about women and girls and their complicated relationships with one another. What draws you to these stories? Because there's this element of wish fulfillment to writing, um, I think that's part of it, is that I'm personally not very brave in real life. I'm a very bad traveler. I was overpacked, that sort of thing. So I'm drawn to these stories because then I get to go and go on these grand adventures. If I walked into some of these worlds that I write about, I would be dead in like five minutes. I'm the kind of person that would not survive a zombie apocalypse and fantasy world. I'd be the fodder. But when I write these stories, I can go inside them and be brave and be strong and save the world and fly on a dragon and meet a stone bird and a stone griffin and do all of these things. And I choose to write about girls and women because I think it's so important to have 
girls and women out there doing the adventures and saving the day. I also like to write about women and, and girls being strong in different ways. Um, for instance, the, the kids' book that I'm working on that's coming out a year from now called Spark, is it's basically about a, a girl with her lightning dragon, and she's very quiet. And I really didn't want to write about, about a quiet girl learning to be loud. I wanted to write about a quiet girl discovering there's strength in her quietness. She is already strong. And that's the kind of character I'm drawn to. Like um, Delena, the main character in Queens of Ranthia, is very much an unchosen one. As, as I was saying before, she's a mediocre student. She just doesn't have the talent, the raw talent that her classmates do. But her magic is her determination. She wants to save her family and her world. Um, and Mega, she's perfectly content to live on this mountaintop. She doesn't want to go off and have adventures and save the day and swing a sword about or whatever. She wants to save her family. She wants a happy life at home. And so I love writing the, these various ways for women and girls to be strong and be themselves. I've never heard a writer talk so gushingly about the process of writing and how much fun it is. That's not, that's not, that's not a thing. And usually people are talking about how they're, they're sweating and, you know, pounding their heads on the keyboard or, or whatever. Is, is this just naturally how it is for you? Or do you have some sort of techniques for keeping it fresh and fun when it starts to be a challenge? I love writing. I absolutely love it. I and mean, I just feel so grateful to be able to do it. It's the only thing I've ever wanted to do with my life, aside from when I wanted to be Wonder Woman when I was five. But that didn't really work out. Um, it doesn't always go well, of course. I, mean, I always have what I call the doomed stage in any story where you get to a certain point and you're convinced that you have no idea how to go forward and you haven't used a verb in like five pages. And who are these characters and what's going on? And ah, I'm doomed. And um, then I just keep writing. <laughs> That's my cure for everything in writing. Okay, it's my cure for everything in life is just to write more. And then you find your way out. And that feeling of finding your way out of the doomed stage is so worth everything that you went through to get there. And to feel something come to life. And then when you get to the end and print it out and see this whole stack of papers, and you're like, I, m I made this. And then you get to dive back in and make it better. That's one of the things I love the most is when you, you have the shape of the story and then you get to dive in and see it more clearly and get to know these characters even better and get to crystallize it to, so that you can create that dream in someone else's head as perfectly and clearly and movingly, is that even a word, as possible. To, to create something that can touch somebody else's heart and mind and maybe even change them a little, maybe make them a little happier, a little stronger, a little, give them a little joy, give them a little wonder. Yeah, writing makes me happy. <laughs> <laughs> you also wrote Drink, Slay, Love, which is the basis for a recent TV movie. And uh, what was that process like? Uh, did you have a role in that after you had written the book, once it was made for TV? That was so much fun. Uh, so my book, Drinks I Love, is my teen um, vampire and wear unicorn book. It's about a 16-year-old <laughs> vampire who is staked through the heart by a unicorn horn and begins to develop a conscience and is really mad about it because she really enjoys eating people and doesn't want to feel bad for her dinner. 
And it was a lot of fun to write. I highly recommend writing about an evil character. Very cathartic. You just sort of think what you would never do or say and have them do it. Very fun. <laughs> so it was a, a couple of years ago, I was, I was contacted by a producer who wanted to do this as um, a TV movie for Lifetime. And I wasn't really involved in the process itself. You know, the book, the book is the book, and it's separate from the movie. But I did get to kind of watch along as it was developing. And the act of seeing it on TV, I will never forget that. It's just to have these characters that were in your head now on your TV screen, it's so surreal. I was watching when it first came on, and my hands just started shaking. I'm not a person that shakes very often, but I like looked down. I'm like, what is my hand doing? My husband's like, you're very excited. I'm like, that's it. Yes. <laughs> um, and then we got to have this whole party with the vampire theme where we, uh, <laughs> we made all this vampire themed food and we made brownies and put holes in it and put raspberry syrup to be the bite marks. We took uh, <laughs> the pencil rods and grated them into steaks. It was, the whole thing was very fun. <laughs> Highly recommend the experience if you get a chance to do so. So tell us a little bit about what your writing process is like, your your everyday experience of writing. I write every day. I find if I take days off, it makes me grumpy. If I don't have writing, writing kind of stabilizes me. It, it makes the world feel okay, if that makes any sense. It makes things feel balanced. So I really try hard to write every day. The other reason I do that is because I find if you keep the momentum going, it really helps. If you sit down and say, now I shall work on my novel, that is completely paralyzing. But if you just sit down and be like, okay, I'm going to write a paragraph and then I got to go do something else, or I've got to write the scene and you can do that. And if you do that enough times in a row, you have the book. So that's kind of been my, my theory and how I've developed my process. And in the beginning, I used to have all of these myths like, oh, I need this amount of time free, no interruptions, oh, I need to be feeling inspired or whatever. And now, I mean, Stone Girl Story is my 15th book, so I've been doing this for a little while. And my process has changed, and I've tried very hard to drop those myths from my process. And I'm like, okay, if I sit down at my desk and start writing, the muse will show up eventually. She'll see me there every day, and like someday she'll come along, and someday she won't, but more than often, she'll show up and enjoy me, and if she doesn't, I always keep a stash of chocolate by my desk. <laughs> is, is that muse food? Oh, yes. Raisinets specifically, because they've got the raisins inside, so that makes them practically healthy, because, you know, fruit. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm sure that you get a lot of kids coming up to you and saying, I want to be a writer. What, what do you tell them? I do. I love that because I look at them and I think, oh, you're me. Um, but when I was, I, I decided I wanted to be a writer when I was 10 and I had never met another writer. I'd never met anyone that had done this. I just didn't know that an ordinary person could do it. I guess I thought that writers you know, were either mythical like a unicorn or just all dead. But, so I try when, when I meet kids like that, I try to tell them, you can do this. All you need to do is write. That's all you have to do to become a writer. You have to write as much as you can, as often as you can, and that will teach you how to do it. Reading books also helps a lot. <laughs> if you don't like to read, I don't know why you'd want to do this. You need to love stories, mm. and you need to believe in yourself. Try to. Everybody's got that little voice inside them that says, oh, that's not good enough, that's not good enough. You have to try to quiet that voice and just be kind to yourself. That's what will get you through it, just 
treat yourself like you would someone that you love, and then you can get through it. We've been talking with Sarah Beth Durst, and you can find her book, The Stone Girl's Story, in stores right now. Sarah, thank you so much for joining us. This has been wonderful. Thank you so much for having me. I'm Mark Oshiro, author of Anger is a Gift, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City. Today we've got Nate Staniforth on the line. His new book is Here is Real Magic, A Magician's Search for Wonder in the Modern World. Nate, so glad you could join us. Thank you very much for having me on. So you're a stage magician. You've got a show on Discovery called Breaking Magic. And at one point, you lost touch with the reason why you became a magician in the first place. What was that reason? What got you started on this path of magic as a career? You know, I even before I knew about magic tricks, I loved the experience of magic. You know, I remember my parents once took me out to see a meteor shower. And, and that was easily the most amazing thing I had ever seen. And I just, you know, I love that, that sense of being astonished by something. And then later when I discovered magic tricks, I, it, the, it was like, it was like this jolt of electricity because I realized that you can, you can create that experience for other people with, with something as simple as, you know, making a coin disappear or a card trick. And, and so my interest in magic from the beginning has been that I'm not, I'm not a natural performer. I don't like show business. I'm not, there's none of the laser beams or smoke machines or, or tight leather pants that I think people sometimes associate with magic. I love that moment of wonder. That's, that's what I'm trying to do as a magician. And then somehow that lost its spark for you. How, how did that happen? Yeah, well, I think, I suspect that most jobs conceal you know, beneath this veneer of glamour and, and allure from the outside, a, a sort of grinding day-to-day wear and tear on the inside, right? You know, you, you, I think it's, you know, in architecture or entertainment or music or, or journalism, it looks great on the outside. And then once you're in it, um, it's, it's maybe not what you thought it would be. Hmm. I started touring when I was 22 years old. And, and, you know, you get into magic because you love magic, but... I was on the road 100 days a year, 150 days a year, um, and and so much of the job is traveling or marketing or or just you know trying to run a business and and I found that I had very little in my day that was actually about magic. It was all it was it was all all of my time was spent in the the me- mechanics of being a magician, and and I just became disillusioned with the whole process. So uh, about how old were you when, when this had happened? And then when you decided to embark on this trip, which we'll talk about in, in just a bit. Yeah, I was 26 years old, which is, <laughs> which is pretty young for a midlife <laughs> crisis, right? Like I, there was one night um, I was on stage in Milwaukee and, and I just left in the middle of the show. I just stopped and I said, good night, I'm done. And I walked off stage and I went back to my hotel room thinking that you know, maybe this is it. Maybe, maybe this great adventure is over and, and I'm going to become a gardener or, you know, work at Starbucks or something because I just, I, I couldn't reconcile the reality of, of doing this thing that I thought I loved with, with the reality of, um, not actually loving it anymore. 
So where did that take you? You you were in Milwaukee and then you ended up in India. Tell us tell us a little bit about that that trip that you embarked on and what led you to think that maybe travel was the way to get the spark back. So uh, let me start by saying this. On tour, like you can only play so much Angry Birds before <laughs> you know, like on airplanes or in airports or at the venue or in the hotel, there's just a lot of downtime. So you end up reading a lot of books. And on the, the leg of the tour where, you know, that passed through Milwaukee, I just happened to be reading. It was just blind coincidence. I happened to be reading this book on traditional Indian street magic. And so when I went back to the hotel that night after the show, I, I was looking through this book and, and I started dreaming of this adventure where I would sort of forget everything I knew about being a professional magician and, and try to, you know, dream it all up again. And so, you know, every culture in the world has its own tradition of magic that goes back thousands of years. So I could have gone anywhere, but I just happened to be reading a book about Indian magic. So that's where I went. So uh, it just is just kind of happenstance here in your hotel room reading this book and you go to India. How, how did you know where to go and, and where did you go? Tell us about that trip. Yeah, I didn't really have a plan. Um, I, because, you know, part, you know, let me say it this way. My mission was in my mind, I wanted to put myself back in the audience. I wanted to go see a tradition of magic that was unlike my own and, and try to be amazed. So I was going to look for snake charmers and street performers and traditional Indian magicians. Right? I, I wasn't looking for magic tricks. I was looking for the experience of being amazed. What I found, you know, and I found all of those things, and they were amazing, but, but the discovery that I made was that the process of, of traveling and searching for wonder was far more amazing than any of the the magicians that I saw. Um, you know, the thing that magic and travel have in common is they can both deliver this this sort of cataclysmic death blow to the you know your certainty of of you know how the world works. And and for me that was that was a real revelation that that moving myself so far out of my comfort zone. Um, forced me to pay attention and and see things that maybe I would have missed otherwise. So I I didn't really have a plan. I knew that I was going to work my way across the country from east to west by train, and I just made it up along the way as I went. I I did want to find some of the magicians that I had read about in the book, and so I was working my way towards New Delhi with the intention of of meeting up with them at some point. But it was it was. It was an adventure in the real sense of the word because I didn't, I wasn't following an itinerary. I was just sort of wandering and, and seeing where the trip led me. At what point in the book, and correct me if I'm wrong, you end up in what is a really um, poor neighborhood, either part of New Delhi or outside of New Delhi, in a city outside of New Delhi, where there were a lot of, uh, it was almost like a market or someplace or, or, or an outdoor, uh, a large outdoor area. Can, can you describe that for us? Tell us about that, what the feeling was like. Well, so the, the magicians that I w- were trying to find, you know, that I read about in the book, um, had had been forced to settle in this slum known as Shadapur Depot. And I, you know, I knew that I wanted to find them, but I, I didn't know how to do it. So I, I sent an email to the author of the book and said, you know, 
please, have you kept in touch with any of the magicians that, that you wrote about? And so I had this agreement. I was supposed to, to be on a particular corner at a particular time, but that was it. And so I, you know, I got to the, the edge of the slum and it was just, it, it looked like the end of the world. I, you know, I grew up in Iowa and, and shot up her depot, this neighborhood in, in New Delhi was just about as far from that as I could possibly get. And it was unlike anything I'd ever seen before. There were open sewers. And I mean, it looked like the whole place had been bombed. There was rubble and garbage piled everywhere and then carved throughout the ruins was this community. And, and the patriarch of this tribe of magicians uh, met me on the corner and, and led me through this maze of, of burnt out buildings and collapsing ruins to, to his home. And I spent the rest of the day talking with this ancient clan of magicians who've passed their secrets down from, you know, father to son for 3000 years. And, and it was, yeah, I, I saw things that day that I will never forget. But, but the most amazing thing was the, the sense of welcome and hospitality. You know, we had nothing in common except for magic, but, but that was enough. That sounds worthy of a book all on its own. And what an incredible experience. How did you process that? How did you encompass that while you were there and, and afterwards? I, I don't know that I, I have processed it. You know, I think one of the ideas that I, I tried to explore in the book is that when, when you have an experience that stretches your understanding of the world so much. So it's hard for that understanding to shrink back down to normal size. Uh, I, I have never been the same since I went to Shadowford Depot. I think about it every day. Hmm. I think about it every day. That trip was in 2009 and every single day since then I've thought about Shadowford Depot because it was just, it, I mean, uh, there are a lot of things to say about it and, and some of them are in the book, so I don't want to be redundant, but, but I will say that, it was incredible to see how this community of people um, lived and, and even thrived in conditions that seemed from the outside as, as you know, just just terrible. And, 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 you know, how could you possibly live in that environment? But, you know, uh, the, the leader of the tribe had had some success um, in his career as a magician, and he used all of the money that he had earned to wire his home in the middle of the slum with internet access. And, <laughs> and he had a computer there and it was, you know, it was an early basic computer, but the, the kids from the neighborhood would come over and they would learn about, you know, he, he explained to me that he had learned to speak English on the radio by listening to the radio, but the, his computer was, was far better because they could also learn about biology and evolution. And, and it was, uh, it, seeing seeing the ways in which they, you know, transcended and they rose above their circumstances was just, it was it was staggering and, uh, yeah, I, yeah, I don't know what else to say about it. I mean, it, it, it. I feel like the only thing I know now is that I don't know anything for certain because if if that sort of teeming vibrant life can can live in a place like that, then that you know, invalidates everything I thought I knew about, about how, how humanity works. So you'd mentioned that they were forced to live here, move here together. Why is that? Was, was, was this a culture that looked down on magicians or looked down on street performers in general, or was it just that street performers of all types didn't make enough money to, to live well? 
the way they explained it to me was this, that, that street performing used to be embraced by the culture. And, and so, you know, their tribe would travel around. There was a, they, for thousands of years were a nomadic people who would move from village to village and, and do the show and then move on. Um, the way they explained it to me was that sometime in the seventies, um, the, the cultural attitudes towards street performing changed and some of the laws around street performing changed and it made them, made it, made it much harder for them to make a living. And so they were faced with the decision of abandoning their craft and each sort of seeking employment in the modern world, um, or staying together as a family and trying to make it work together as a tribe in the, in the slum and they chose the, the latter and you know it, it it was really remarkable to see them function together as this you know really successful you know it, it sounds strange to say that because because the living conditions were terrible but they had found a way to to really um you know thrive and have you seen, you know, we talk about the changes there, in your time as a performer, have, have you seen the, the way the audience or, or the presentations have changed for magicians? I think that's hard for me to answer accurately because I, the, you know, I'm better now than I was when I started 20 years ago or, or whatever it was. And so, uh, you know, I see the change that comes from just learning how to handle an audience. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't, I don't know how how an audience would have um, differed, you know, between 20 years ago and now. I will say that, you know, our culture has a very strange relationship with magic, and I think it's I think it's telling that, you know, Job Bluth from Arrested Development is sort of a, the the personification of the American attitude towards magic. Here's this sort of buffoonish character who's the butt of every joke in the show, and. And I think that's how I think that's how most people think about magic. But it's strange as a stage performer because you you're aware of that. But every night on stage, I see people in the audience maybe come in and start the show with their arms crossed and, and they're sort of I don't know if skeptical is the right word, but maybe cynical is the right word about the whole process. And then over the course of the show, they just sort of melt and unfold. And you know that. I think any magician in the world will tell you that that is is really a, re- a rewarding part of the job, seeing a room full of of um, cynical and disengaged people just sort of become unified into this, you know, collective group of of uh, people united in in this moment of astonishment and joy. We're going to take a quick break, but don't go away. Join us for a lively conversation about kids and teens audio on January 25th at the Random House Cafe Auditorium in New York. You'll hear from Scholastic, Audible, Panoply, and Disney with a Q&A to follow. This breakfast panel is sponsored by Publishers Weekly and the Bologna Children's Book Fair. Find out more at publishersweekly.com slash gkc18series. That's publishersweekly.com slash gkc18series. We'll see you there. Welcome back. We're talking with Nate Staniforth, author of Here is Real Magic. So is that the real magic that you're talking about in the title of your book, the the magic of connection and of wonder? Yeah, there are a couple things going on with the title, but but that's certainly part of it, that as a magician, you get to see a side of humanity that is normally kept very private. 
I don't know if it's a John Lennon line or if he stole it from T.S. Eliot, but there's that line about putting on the face to meet the faces that you meet. And we all sort of do that all the time. We're all performing for each other on some level when we choose the Ramones t-shirt over the suit or the thick glasses over the contact lenses, you know, and, and the words we use and the way we carry ourselves. And, and we're all sort of broadcasting to the world the way we want the world to see us. And, and one of the really special things about a moment of impossibility is that it makes you forget to be cool for a moment. All of that performativity drops away. And for a moment, there's this, this unguarded, unaffected uh, moment of just connection. And, you know, I feel like magicians get to see people at their very best. And I wish everybody could, I wish everybody could see that at least once. Who are some of the performers who have inspired you, both when you were getting started and um, perhaps if you can tell us about some of the people that you met in India as well? Growing up as a magician in Ames, Iowa, um, before YouTube was invented, was was um, very isolated because you know we didn't have a lot of magicians coming through on tour and the only access to the world of magic I had was in books from the library. So my first heroes were the great masters of of magic you know in the past i i read everything i could find about houdini because you know for for a 10 year old boy learning about houdini's story is very close to real magic on its own because as a 10 year old he just decided that he was going to become the greatest magician in the world and he ran away from home as a 10 year old joined the circus and started performing and sent money back to his mom to help with the, the younger children. And I, I was really, um, I was really taken with his sense of, um, just willpower, like deciding what he wanted to do and then, and fighting to make it happen. And, you know, as I got older and had access to other magicians, I, I became aware that I, I was, I was lucky to grow up in Iowa because when you when you see other magicians, it's easy to become influenced by them or to try to copy them. And I really like that I grew up um, away from that world because I had to invent everything. You know, you can you can find technique in in books, but in terms of aesthetics or how that experience should feel, I had to come up with a lot of that on my own, which is something that that has served me well in the years since. And how about some of the folks who you met in New Delhi, uh, who who sort of helped to rekindle that spark for you? Well, the, the I mean, I, the the leader of that tribe right now is a man named Ishamuddin Khan, and and he's the man who used his success to wire his home with internet access. And I I was I was impressed with him for so many reasons. He's a, a world class magician, but you know he's also um, by all appearances, uh, an excellent father and a, a, a good member of his community. And I just, I, I like the way that, that he welcomed me so openly and brought me into his world and, and then showed me magic that I will remember for the rest of my life, you know, things I could not possibly explain. Let's talk about art and what happens when you lose that sense of being inspired. I think that everyone who's ever created art has had those moments where you have to try to figure out whether to give up and walk away, clear your head, just do something workmanlike and sort it out later. How did that affect your sense of yourself as an artist 
um, and and of what was possible for you? You know, I think we're all really good at um, becoming used to things, making things normal. And I think as an artist, that's dangerous because, um, you know, especially with magic, you, you get into magic because you love that that spark and that fire. And that is, that is the very heart of the profession, right? That's what you're trying to give to other people. So when that dies, you, you have nothing left. One of the, the really liberating uh, things about this book for me was that so much of my personal identity is tied up with being a magician. And I wondered if that makes it actually harder to do the work, right? If it makes it harder to do good work as an artist, if, if you're so focused on, being that kind of artist in your own mind and and the book was a it was a chance to solve new problems and and you know writing is just every bit as hard as magic but but it's hard in different ways and i thought oh it's nice to not have to do the impossible that i'm glad to have a break from that and you know now being on the other side of it i i can look at my own work as a magician in a new way as well what was the writing process like for you when I when I was in India, I had this sense that I felt like I had been struck by lightning, and I needed to I needed to ground it somehow. And I I didn't know if I could do it as a magician. I felt like I had this thing that I needed to to communicate, and I just I didn't know if if card tricks were if they could carry the the weight of this thing that felt so important to share. And so when I came back from India, I st- I just decided, okay, I'm going to learn how to write now. One of the things that um, you learn as a magician pretty early on is how to get good at becoming better at things. Because, you know, like take the guitar, for instance. If, if you learn to become a guitar player, you can apply the same scales and chords to any number of different songs. But that's not true with magic. Every illusion is its own kind of discipline. Uh, if, you know, one illusion might use sleight of hand, the other might use mem- memory work or psychological psychological subtleties and and so you end up having to learn a a different skill set for each piece in your show and so i just you know after i came home from india i just decided okay 15 minutes a day i'm going to write and it's going to be terrible but i'm just going to start this process and then pretty quickly 15 minutes a day became half an hour a day and then 45 minutes a day and then an hour a day And, and i just i realized that i had something that i needed to say and i needed to to learn how to say it in a way that people could could connect with and relate to. So that that same word document became the book. It just changed and evolved and got edited and cut down and revised and expanded. But um, it, you know, it, I just I think so many people. Well, yeah. I mean, for for me, it was that was the reason. I felt like I had something I needed to say, and maybe a book is the best way to say it. What surprised you most about the process of writing or, 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 or anywhere along this journey? It was, it was very disorienting not having um, feedback in the process because for 20 years as a stage magician, I'd learned to read a room very carefully so I could sense what a silence meant or what a laugh meant or what, you know, a shout or, or you know, I could, I could read the audience very carefully and, and adjust my approach to make sure that I was giving them the experience that I wanted to give them. And, and as a, as a writer, 
you know, I'd sit down and, you know, write what, 400 words, 500 words in a day. And, and it took a lot, a lot of time to get used to the fact that there was no one there at the end of the day to tell me if it worked or not. And, and, and that was really hard developing that, that, um, self-awareness about the work rather than, um, leaning into the audience for, for that, for that um, response. And, you know, I think I got there in the end, but, but it took a lot of time to learn that. And now the book's going to be out in the world and is going to find its audience, but it's too late for you to change anything in response. How is, how is that feeling for you? How are you anticipating that? I feel very exposed at the moment <laughs> because, you know, it, it took four years to write this book and now, you know, I was just on my own alone writing and, and now it's out in the world. And uh, it's, this has been a pretty strange 48 hours for me, but I'm having a great time. I, I will say that, um, I coming from the world of, of, um, you know, stage performance and entertainment and television, the, this foray into the world of publishing and literature has been, I, I feel very, very fortunate and I'm, I'm glad to be here. There was one moment in the book, uh, if I recall where someone had, come up to you after seeing a performance uh, while you were in India and, and kind of berated you for, for, for what he thought was just, just pulling the wool over people's eyes and you're being maybe foolish or disingenuous to do so. What was your reaction to that? You know, I think this is a problem that, that magicians have faced um, for a long time. And, and in many different cultures, it's not just true in India, but, but right now in India, um, there are figures who use um, sleight of hand magic not to entertain or not, not as art, right? Not to share anything with their um, audience, but to convince the audience that they possess actual divine supernatural power and should therefore be followed and treated as spiritual leaders. And, and the, you know, there's, there's a, a tremendous, resistance against this um, among various Indian rationalist societies and, and, you know, to their credit, who are pushing back really hard on these charlatans who use sleight of hand magic to make it look, to, to claim supernatural power. Um, uh, there are a number of magicians in India who have teamed up with um, rationalist societies to uh, debunk and disprove a lot of these charlatans. But, but I think that man was... Um, I think he was coming at, at my performance from that perspective, that, that, um, what, what you might perceive as art could also be perceived as just spreading superstition and, and to be careful. And meanwhile, in Western culture, I feel like we've seen a sort of resurgence in popular media of interest in magic and sleight of hand. You get uh, films like The Prestige and Now You See Me. Uh, you have your television show on Discovery. Um, what's, what's that atmosphere been like for you as a stage performer? How does that influence the way your performances go and how your audiences respond? Yeah, it's, it's an exciting time to be a magician. I think, I think over the next five year, years, we are going to see magic explode. And I say that because right now it feels like magic is where music, where popular music was in the fifties. Uh, you know, music changed forever because of the Fender Telecaster guitar. It was like the first 
cheap, commercially available electric guitar that teenagers could afford. And so they just flooded the basements and garages of, of America and Europe. You know, Hendrix had one, Dylan had one, Janis Joplin had one, everyone had one. And, and it changed magic forever. Or excuse me, it changed music forever. Magic's electric guitar moment was the David Blaine Street Magic special in 1997. And, you know, for the first time, you didn't need a a million dollar lighting rig and and you know large illusions to perform on stage suddenly you just needed a deck of cards and an imagination the electric guitar was invented in the 30s and it took 20 years to sort of work its way into the popular culture and that's about the timeline that that magic is right now with with the blaine special so i think i think we are going to see people taking magic in so many different directions that you know it used to be there was only one successful, really famous magician at a time. And I think we're, we're well past that era. I think we're going to see um, people doing different things and taking it in different directions. And, uh, I'm, I'm certainly excited to be a part of that. We've been talking with Nate Staniforth, and you can find his book, Here is Real Magic, in stores right now. Nate, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me on your show. Beyond the headlines, beyond the routine, beyond the book, I'm Chris Keneally, host of Copyright Clearance and his podcast series, Beyond the Book. And I'm Andrew Albany, senior writer at Publishers Weekly. Join us each Friday for a publishing news week in review podcast unlike any other. Learn all the breaking news and catch the best analysis on developments in the book trade, copyright law, and much more. You already know business as usual. Now go Beyond the Book. Listen to the free series and subscribe at beyondthebook.com. And that's it for today's show. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella, and you've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. Join us next week for another scintillating author interview. We'll also have lots more juicy insider info on best-selling books and the nuts and bolts of publishing. In the meantime, you can find this in every episode of Publishers Weekly Radio on our website at publishersweekly.com slash pwradio and also on iHeartRadio and iTunes, available for you to listen absolutely free. So check the site every week for a brand new episode giving you the inside story on your favorite story. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio Show. 